Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting in verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he's a father of a son, but has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing from his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toll, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Let me pray. Father, we ask, as we examine your word today, um, Father, as we look at it, that you would work by the power of your spirit to examine our hearts, our minds, that you would turn on the lights for us so that we would see your word, the truth of it. We would love it. We would rejoice in it. We'd be changed by it. Father, we would know the proper place of your gifts in our life that we would be a people who are thankful, who are rejoicing today. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, this is the first 
sermon, I think, if, if you're a visitor, so you know, and if you're someone who's been here for whatever we've been around, four and a half years, this is the first sermon I think I've ever given at Sovereign Grace on the topic of money. Ever given. First sermon ever given on the topic of money. And you might think, well, why are you doing a sermon on the topic of money? Or is, is the church low in its giving? Right? Because that's usually the case. We, low, not that we do that, but often, you know, the church is low in giving, and so you start hammering them. Give, give, give. No, actually, you're a congregation that has blessed us immensely. We have no complaints about your giving. Uh, your giving has been blessing us immensely. We have more uh, right now than we expected to have at this point of the year. And the Lord is being blessing us the opportunity to now give that away into missions efforts, etc., even to save up for a future home for the church. It's been incredible to see your generosity to us. So that's not why we're talking about it. So why are we talking about money today? It's because we're preaching through Ecclesiastes and we came to a passage that's talking about money. That's why, right? It's real simple, our sermon approach. The way we approach series is we say, let's preach this book. And then when we get to that passage, whatever it's talking about, it's talking about. So today we're talking about money and we're a country that is wealthy. You're aware of that, right? We're a country that has lots of money. We're wealthy. We're rich. You might say, but we're in a serious recession. It's a recession that most countries in the world dream of having. We have a lot of money. We have a lot of goods. If you don't believe me, how many of you went to Starbucks this morning and bought some $4 foo-foo drink and are going to go to lunch after? We've got money. So the question is, is having all of this money good or bad? Is having all of this money a blessing or a curse? And Christians tend to respond to that question in two ways. Two ways that we tend to, and these are broad categories, I could probably nuance them more, but broadly, we see money either as a blessing or wealth as a blessing from God that is a necessary kind of blessing. If we don't have it, then we start to think he's against us. You understand what I'm saying? And therefore, we run off into materialism. And you see that in the blatant form. What's the blatant form of that is the health wealth gospel. The people you see on TV who are constantly telling you, if you just believe enough, God's going to give you more. He wants you to be rich and healthy. That's the blatant form of it. Which is essentially what's happening there is a group of men are basically milking poor people so that they can be rich and then saying to the poor people, if you have enough faith, you're going to make us wealthy. That's essentially what's happening there. Then there's the less blatant version. That's where Christians financially struggle and think that that's a sure sign that God is against them, right? Or there's the second major way we see money, which is we see wealth as evil. See it as evil. So here's where we see it as good, and if God's not given it to me, he must be against me. And here's where we see it as evil, Right? And so we practice what's called asceticism. Do you know what that is? It's where we give up things because we think giving up things makes us more righteous. We practice what's a mild form of Gnosticism, which comes out of the second and third centuries, which is this idea that the physical body and all the things on the earth are somehow inherently evil or at best neutral. And the spiritual things are good. So if you ever catch yourself enjoying the physical things, that in some way you're less spiritual, you're less godly. So why are we so confused about money and wealth and riches? Why? Why are we so confused about it? Is money a good gift? Or is it a root of all kinds of evil? What's the answer? 
Well, it depends. Here's the end. The answer depends on the condition of your heart toward it. Hear that? Depends on the condition of your heart toward money. Are you idolatrously pursuing wealth or not? There are scriptures that talk about money as a blessing. I don't know if you're aware of that. Lots of scriptures, in fact, talk about money as a blessing. Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses is writing to the Israelites, the second generation. Deuteronomy, Dudo is talking about the second namas law, the second giving of the law. The first generation of Israel had already been given the law. They were headed in to the promised land. They weren't going to go all the way into the promised land, but the second generation was going to go into the promised land. And Moses was writing to them and telling them about this covenant God who had promised them that they would get to the promised land and he would bless them. And here's what Moses says to them. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he, God, who gives you power to get wealth. Why? Why does he do that? That he may confirm his covenant, his promise that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. That God gave them wealth, the power to get wealth, to confirm his promise to them. Second Chronicles, there's a guy named Solomon, King Solomon, who some suspect is the author of Ecclesiastes, who God basically came to and said, hey, um, Solomon, you can have whatever you want. What do you want to ask for? And Solomon could ask for riches. He could have asked to be the most powerful king in the world. He could have asked uh, for lots of wives. He ended up getting them anyway. But he could have asked for all kinds of things. What he could ask for the death of his enemies. What did Solomon ask for? He asked for wisdom. God, I want wisdom. And here's how God answers him as a result. God answers Solomon, because this was in your heart, and you have not asked possessions or wealth or honor or the life of those who hate you, and not even asked for long life, but have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may govern my people over whom I've made you king, wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. And I will also give you riches and possessions and honor such as none of the kings who had had who are before you, and none after you shall have the like. I'm going to bless you with money. Psalm 112, verse 1 and 3, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Listen, wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Proverbs chapter 12, Whoever is slothful will not roast his game. Hear that? What is roasting your game? I roasted my game last night. I barbecued, right? If you're slothful, you're not going to roast your game because you're lazy. You're not going to have any money. But the diligent man will get precious wealth. Proverbs 13, verse 18, poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction. If you're unwise or you're foolish, you will be poor. But whoever heeds reproof is honored. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. I don't know about you, but, but I can't afford to leave an inheritance to even my kids right now, let alone their kids. Obviously, that good man has some money. Proverbs 14, when he's speaking to the wise, in all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. The crown of the wise is their wealth, but the folly of fools brings more folly. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Hear that? All kinds of scriptures that talk about money as a blessing. Wealth is a blessing. But there are also scriptures that talk about money as an idol. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 28. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Trust in your riches, you will fall. 
Proverbs 28, verse 20. A faithful man will abound with blessings, but whoever hastens, that's pursues, desires, go after with all his might, to be rich will not go unpunished. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is speaking, and he says no one can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Matthew chapter 13 you guys have heard of the parable of the four soils, perhaps? Jesus tells a parable in which he talks about four different soils upon which a seed is spread. The seed being the word, the gospel. And it's put on those soils. The fourth soil is the only soil in whom God has worked. It's the only good soil, and therefore it produces fruit. The other three soils produce other things. The third soil in the parable of the four soils is this one. Listen to what Jesus says. As for what was sown among thorns, it's the third soil, this is the one who hears the word, He hears it, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Luke chapter 12, Jason just read from that passage earlier about the man who's storing up everything into his barn and finding security in his money and his treasures and isn't rich toward God. Jesus goes on in that same passage and says this, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. That is the violation of the 10th commandment, which Paul says is idolatry. It's the pursuit of something you don't have because you aren't thankful for what you have. Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Luke chapter 18, the story of the rich young ruler, a man who came to Jesus who was wealthy who said, I've kept your commandments. Now, now what else do I have to do? And Jesus says, one thing you lack, give up all your money, give it all to the poor and come follow me. What is Jesus going after with that man? You violating the first commandment, rich young ruler. Do you not know that your money is your idol? You really want to follow me? Repent of that idol. Come follow me. Give it all up. Rich young ruler walks away sad because he doesn't want to do it. And Jesus addresses that and says this. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Do you hear that? Paul deals with both sides of this issue in one chapter, so I want to look at it. Keep your hand in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We will get to this passage, I promise. And go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you're not familiar with the New Testament, 1 Timothy is right after 2 Thessalonians. But you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, and then you have 1 Timothy, then 2 Timothy, then Titus, then Philemon, then Hebrews. So if you've gotten to those, you've gone too far. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I want you to look at what he says in verse 9. 1 Timothy chapter 6 in verse 9. Talking about idolatry here. But those who desire to be rich, this is Paul speaking to Timothy. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. He doesn't say those who are rich fall into temptation. You hear that? Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Look, I don't even have to back that up. You guys know that when people pursue wealth idolatrously, it wrecks their life. For the love of money, now notice that, not money is a root of all kinds of evil. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Then if you go to verse 17, 
Paul tells Timothy how to instruct the rich in this present world. As for the rich in this present age, which basically, by the way, pretty much encompasses all of us. Okay, by biblical New Testament standards, we're all in the rich, wealthy category. So it, it means that God, since it's, since it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to be saved under the kingdom of God, it means that God has worked miraculously in our lives, doesn't it? Because here we are. It says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. That means, that means don't be prideful. Don't try to show off and make yourself look better than other people. Nor, look what he says, to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Don't be prideful if you're wealthy. Don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. What happens when people set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches? What happens is when the economy falls apart, you start finding out, hearing about contractors who are putting bullets in their head because the housing market's in a slump, because their hope was set on the uncertainty of riches and not God. And look what it says about it. Paul doesn't go on and say, because riches are a curse. That's what he says. He says, on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Hear that, rich people? Why did he give you all this? Not so you'd trust in it, not so you'd be prideful, but so you would enjoy it. That's why. And he goes on, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. What are you supposed to do with the money God's given you? You don't trust in it. You don't let it make you haughty. You enjoy it and you share it. There you go. He sums it up. So the pursuit of money, the desire for money, is a root of all kinds of evil. Yet money at the same time is also a blessing to be enjoyed. And the question is, how can both be true? They can both be true if you understand that the issue of money being an evil is based on what, or a good, is based on the condition of your heart regarding it. It's based on the condition of your heart regarding it. The question is, is it an idol of your heart? Is it an idol of your heart? What's an idol? An idol is when I take a good thing and I make it an ultimate thing. I take a good thing. Sex is a good thing. Children, good thing. Reputation, good thing. Food, good thing, right? Money, good thing. I take any of those good things... And I make them ultimate. And how do I know when I've made them ultimate? Because I'll sin to get them. Sex is a good thing. If I won't wait till marriage or I won't keep sex reserved for marriage, I've made it into an idol. Money is a good thing. But if I will participate in unethical business practices, lie, cheat, and steal to get more of it, it's an idol. You hear that? Childbearing, good thing. But if I will forsake serving other people, I will forsake worshiping God for the sake of my child, that child's become an idol. I tell young people all the time when they're pregnant, and it's always encouraging news, but you're about to see before you in nine months what's going to happen is you're going to give birth to your greatest temptation to idolatry. Children are an incredible blessing from the Lord, but they can also be an idol. Whenever a good thing becomes an ultimate thing and you'll sin to get it, it's an idol. But just because something can become an idol doesn't make that thing inherently sinful. Hear that? Or bad. Just because our culture has made sex and pleasure to an idol doesn't mean those things are evil inherently. Inherently good, we abuse a good gift. Just because our culture has abused alcohol doesn't mean it's inherently sinful. It's been abused. It's become an idol. Just because our culture has abused money via materialism doesn't mean that money is inherently evil. You guys understand that? 
We take good things and we abuse them. It doesn't mean it's bad in and of itself. Let me, let me give you an analogy as a father. I'm a dad. I have a son and a daughter. Let me just take my son, for example. I love my son. I love to give gifts to my son. I mean, you know if you're parents, you love it when you give gifts to your children. You love to see them excited about the gift. I want to give them good gifts. However, if my son wanted to exchange me for his gifts, I wouldn't be very pleased. I mean, I want him to enjoy the gifts, but I don't want to love them so much that his love for the gifts replaces his love for me. I want his enjoyment of the gifts to cause him to love me even more, to recognize my mind. Dad, my dad is good. He loves me. Look at how he's giving to me. C.S. Lewis talks about how we do this um, when he talks about a time he was in a shed. C.S. Lewis is dead now, but great um, literature professor out of Oxford. And he, he, he writes about how um, he was at one point in a shed and, and uh, he was looking over at a beam of light. Have you guys ever been in a shed and it's kind of dark and then you see a little crack in the shed doors and there's a little light coming through and he's looking at the beam of light and it has all the little dust particles in it and he says, I was enjoying the beam of light in and of itself, not thinking about the source of that beauty. So it wasn't until I stepped into the beam of light and let it hit me in the eyes that I then looked up the beam of light, through the crack in the doors, and out to the source, the sun, that I recognized that the beam of light is just there to point me back to the source. And see, what we're like is we're like people who God gives gifts to all the time who are standing in the shed looking at the gift and not recognizing the source from which it came. That's idolatry. We are to enjoy God and his gifts. We are to rejoice in the Lord in everything he gives us. But the fact is we fail to enjoy God and his gifts because we're never satisfied, right? We're always lusting for more and are ungrateful for what we have. And it's not a problem that exists in our present age alone. It's a problem of humans since the fall into sin. And it's a problem that exists in the preacher of Ecclesiastes' day. And it's the problem the preacher of Ecclesiastes is addressing. And he addresses it through three primary movements, okay? Three sections he addresses it. And what I want to do today is I want to show you the three sections or the three movements through which the preacher of Ecclesiastes addresses this problem. But here's the thing. When we look at the text, as you may have noticed when we read it, um, it's, it's written very differently than we write. It's written in what's called a chiastic structure, Okay? You go, well, that's helpful to me. Let me explain what that is. That's a literary device the Hebrews used. And the way that they would argue literarily is very different than us. They would, it's, it's, it's sort of imagine a ladder. You have steps up a ladder to the top. Let's say the top of the ladder is the pinnacle of the argument. And then you step back down. What they would do is they would start the argument with argument A. Here it is. And then at the end of the argument, the very end of the argument, they would repeat argument A. And then the second movement would be argument B. And second to last, they repeat argument B. And then at the very pinnacle would be the climax, the conclusion, the thing they're driving at, which is, our, which is C, sort of the concluding matter. So they would go up the ladder to the, the point they're trying to make, and they'd come back down the ladder. We don't argue that way. We start with A, then go to B, then go to C. We're Western thinkers. We're linear. That's how we think. And so guess what? I am not going to follow the preacher's order. Because it's, you're, I'm going to get to the climax in the middle of the sermon, and you're going to be like, repeat everything I just said. You're all going to be, what's that about? Well, it's a great literary device. Don't you enjoy it? No, I don't. Please get to the point and land the plane, right? So here's what we're going to do. 
We're going to take argument A at the beginning and argument A at the end and just bring them together. So you're going to follow me in the text that way to the end, okay? Here's, here's how it's going to happen. Look with me at the first argument he makes, the first movement that he brings to this argument. It starts in verse 8 of chapter 5, and here is what it is. The pursuit of money never satisfies. The pursuit of money, the desire for it, or wealth, never satisfies. Chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes, verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high officials watched by higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for land in every way, a king committed to his fields. What are you talking about? How does that have to do with wealth? Here's what he's saying. Wealth gets captured. The desire for wealth is also shared by kings, rulers, government. doesn't surprise you, does it? And what he's saying is when you see in a province, in a land, the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, you ought not be surprised. When you see your government always pursuing getting more of your money and wasting it, and you see injustice and unrighteousness, and eventually even the oppression of the poor, don't be surprised by that. Why not? Because kings, look what it says, the high officials watch by higher. They're watching out for each other. Those people in government, they care about one another. That's what they care about, and that's what they're watching out for, and they're watching each other's money, uh, their pocketbook, their power, their position, etc. That's what they care about. That's why you're going to see that in government, period. You say, wow, it's amazing that this was true, you know, 2,500 years ago, and it's still true, isn't it? He goes on, he says in verse 9, but there is a gain in it. I, he sort of throws in this parenthetical comment. There is a gain for a land in every way. A king is committed to cultivated fields. In other words, something's getting done. It's like saying this. There's a gain. The king wants to put roads in. He wants to do some things that are helpful because if he doesn't, we're, we're going to overthrow him. Right? So there's some gain, but ultimately, wealth captures him. He's pursuing it, and as a result, oppression and injustice happens. Don't be surprised. That's what he says. That's what wealth does to us. We pursue it, causes us to be unjust. He goes on, he says, verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. It's like, uh, it, it's not substantive. You get it, and it seems exciting right at first, but it never really pays off. It's short-lived. It's like a breath on a cold morning. You see the breath, and then it dissipates and goes away. That's what he means by vanity. You know what it's like. You get money for that thing at the store you always wanted to buy, or that new car that you really wanted to buy, and you finally go with your money, and you go down there and buy, and it's so exciting all the way up to the point you buy it, and then you drive off, and you're like, okay, well, now I have buyer's remorse. I feel kind of bad. I like the new car smell, but uh, it's still, right? And you're never really satisfied. It's never enough. Verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. In other words, the more you get, the more people who eat them. The more money you have, then you've got to hire a gardener. And because your business is going so well, you need a gardener. And then you need someone who does your laundry. Then you've got to get someone who cleans your house. And then you've got to get some security if you get really rich to protect you. And then you've got to get this person, that person, this person, that person. And all your money ends up doing is being something you accumulate so other people can consume it. He goes on and says, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? In other words, and basically what happens to the rich guys, he sits there and watches all these people consume his money. It goes on, sweet, verse 12, is the sleep of a laborer, whether eats little or much. 
but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Why not? He's stressed out all the time. And what he's saying is, the more money you have, the more you have, the more you have to worry about. The more things you have to attend to, the more concerns you have, the less you sleep well. So that's generally, it's a proverb. It doesn't mean it's always true. Some people might sleep. I sleep like a baby no matter what. When I was in the army, I, was, I would literally, in a tank, we would be firing the tank and driving, and I would be in the back sleeping, okay? That's just me. But the point is, proverbially, generally the case is that when someone accumulates too much, they don't sleep well because they're having to worry about all of, their, all of their issues. goes on, that's the end of A, but go to chapter 6 real quick. You'll see the rest of where he continues to argue this at the end of the argument. Verse 7, chapter 6, verse 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth. In other words, the reason you work is to feed yourself, yet his appetite is not satisfied. He is never getting enough. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool, and what is the poor man who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes and the wandering of the appetite. This is also vanity and striving after the wind. In other words, it's, it's better just to have the thing and enjoy it than to wander around with your appetite looking for it, right? Because it's just a striving after the wind. It's never satisfied. It's never dealt with. I, I talked to the first sermon on Ecclesiastes when we started the series. I, I made the comment that I told you the story. Really, I told you the story of John D. Rockefeller. You may have heard of Rockefeller. He's the richest man in the world in the last two centuries. They, they estimate his wealth based on the GDP, the gross domestic product of the nation at the time, as being a, um, comparable to putting Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, the two richest men in the world right now, together. Estimate his wealth. His company was broken up during antitrust suits in the early 1900s. And when his company was broken up, um, there are four major companies, oil companies today that came out of it. He owned Standard Oil, but like you have um, Exxon and Chevron, and you heard of these companies? All in the top four of the companies that came out of his one company are in the top 50 biggest companies in the world today. John D. Rockefeller was extremely wealthy, although known for some period of time to be a man who basically um, ate crackers and milk by himself and was always emaciated and hungry, although I'm not sure how true all the stories are, but basically he was just caught up with work so much. When the one time they asked John D. Rockefeller, you're the richest man in the world, how much money is enough? He replied famously, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. Why is it never enough? It's never enough because of ingratitude. Hear that? Go back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. God has given them everything, everything to enjoy. Everything. There's no sin, suffering, death, none of it. All good gifts to enjoy. But there's one tree they can't eat from. One. And what does Satan come to them and say? You know you want to taste that fruit. Look at what God's withholding from you. And what springs up in the heart of Adam and Eve is ingratitude. Hear that? We don't quite have it all yet. We want that thing we lack. They didn't have thankful hearts. And so lust sprung up in their heart. And Paul sums this up in Romans chapter 1, verse 21. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Hear that? See, when I'm lusting after something, when I'm sinfully desiring more than I currently have, that's an indication that the source of that is a lack of thankfulness or ingratitude. 
Lust, sinful desire, idolatry is all birthed out of ingratitude, out of not being thankful. That's why the pursuit of wealth can never satisfy. That's why the if-only syndrome never quite finishes. If only I had this, then I would be happy. No, you won't be. Because you'll have that, and the next if-only will come because you're not thankful. And so we never enjoy life now because we're always pining away after what we don't have. And that leads to the second point that the preacher makes, his second movement. His second argument is this. It is evil that it is evil that we don't enjoy life now. Hear that? It is evil that we don't enjoy life now. The preacher goes on to point out how our idolatrous pursuit of wealth, of more, brings about the very miserable life that we're seeking to avoid. That's the irony. We're pursuing something because we're seeking to avoid what we think is miserable now. And what that pursuit does is makes now even more miserable. Look at verse 13 of chapter 5 in Ecclesiastes, where he starts to make this argument. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. That's on earth, in human life. There's a grievous evil I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. In other words, he didn't spend them. He stored them up. He never enjoyed them. He never gave it away. He stored it up. And what happened? And those riches were lost in a bad venture. He went out in a business or something else and lost it all. And he's a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. In other words, he's got nothing to give his son now. No inheritance to give away. And he didn't enjoy it while he had it. Verse 15, as he came from his mother's womb, so he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing from his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? He's pursuing something that he lacks what gain is there for him? Moreover, all his days, see what happens to him. All his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. He's a mess all the time. He's pursuing wealth and everybody abandons him. The only people around him are people who want to consume his wealth. Do you hear that? The people around him are a group of leeches who want to consume his wealth. And he never enjoys it and he just watches it get spent away. Now look at the second part of this argument because he goes on in, verse, in chapter 6, verse 1, continues to make this same argument. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. In other words, he's getting it all, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. In other words, this is a man so caught up in his idolatry that he has everything he ever wanted and still is not thankful. And he doesn't enjoy them, so strangers enjoy them because eventually he's dead and other people get it. Goes on in verse 3. If a man fathers... A hundred children, which, by the way, would be the greatest blessing in that culture. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full. That's not talking about having lots of arrows to shoot. Okay? So I'm having a lot of kids. Goes on. If a man fathers a hundred children, I'm going to give you an extreme, extreme example. Even if a man has a hundred children, can you imagine a greater blessing than that, Israelites? No, we can't imagine a greater blessing than that. Well, even if that's true... And he lives many years. Can you imagine a greater blessing than living many years? No, we can't imagine a greater blessing. And even if that's true, what? What does he say? But his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. He has no burial. In other words, he doesn't have that. 
honor of being buried. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Hear that? Listen, Sovereign Grace, you can have a hundred kids, you can have all the money in the world, and you can live a thousand years. But if you aren't thankful, if you don't learn to enjoy what you have been given by God now, a stillborn child is better off than you. Hear that? Why? For it, the stillborn child, verse 4, comes in vanity, goes in darkness. In darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. Look, the baby dies as a stillborn child. It never has to go through life being given everything and never knowing how to enjoy any of it. It's better off than you. If we don't learn to be thankful, we're going to miss today. I hear this. You will miss today, and tomorrow isn't guaranteed to you. Do you hear that? If you don't learn to be thankful, you will miss today, and you don't know that tomorrow's coming. No matter what you have or don't have, you will soon be dead. What you hear, that is the argument of the preacher of Ecclesiastes. It doesn't matter what you have or don't have, you will be dead. You can't take any of it with you. And it's coming soon. So if you're not thankful, just know you will soon be dead. If you're rich, the end of the matter is you'll be dead soon. If you are poor, the end of the matter is you will be dead soon. And if you're afraid of dying, stop. Because the end of the matter is you'll be dead soon. Right? No matter what you do, you will soon be dead. So how evil is it if we don't enjoy life now and aren't thankful now? Hear that? If we never enjoy it, if we are not thankful, that's sad. It's better if you were a stillborn baby. Third argument, third movement, third section, the climax. Here's where we conclude. Chapter 5, verse 18 through 20. Chapter 5, this is the climax, the pinnacle of the argument, the conclusion of the matter. Behold what I have seen to be good and fitting. In other words, the preacher's going to tell us what's good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him for this is his lot. You hear that? What have I seen to be good? And fitting is to eat. That's talking about eating good food. He's not talking about gluttony. That's a sin. He's talking about eating good food. To drink. He's talking there specifically about drinking wine. Because it makes the soul merry or glad. Drinking good drink. He's not talking about getting drunk. That's a sin. And to find enjoyment. To enjoy what God has given you to do with your life all the days of your life. That's what it is. What vocation or calling has he put in your life? What do I mean by that? Whether you're a carpenter or you're a pastor, whether you're a mom who stays home, right, or you're a businessman, it doesn't really matter. Whatever God has given you to do, enjoy that. Be thankful all the days of your life. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is a gift of God. You hear that? If God has given you wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them, to be thankful and enjoy them, then do it because that's a gift from God to you. It's a gift that not everybody shares. Enjoy them. Enjoy what he's given you for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. You hear that? That's what God does in you. What's the preacher saying? 
You guys remember the movie with, I think it was Robin Williams years ago, and he was a teacher, and he jumped up on the desk and tore up the book and yelled out, carpe diem. You're like, what an odd bird, right? And if I was in class, I don't think my whole group of classmates would follow him around like those strange kids did. But the point is, he yelled out, carpe diem. You know what that word means? Seize the day. Remember that? Essentially, what the preacher is saying is, seize the day. Seize it. There is an ascetic or Gnostic tendency in Christianity that I addressed early that's growing. It's growing in Christianity. It concerns me. It concerns me because it essentially breeds guilt in Christians for enjoying food and drink and all the other good gifts that God has given. And I want you to remember my analogy from the father analogy about giving gifts to my children. Because sometimes I think that when God blesses us, we sort of treat it um, as if like I was on Christmas and I give my son this great gift. My son opens the gift and goes, Oh, this is so nice, Dad. Thanks. And he goes over and throws it in the trash can. And I say, son, why are you throwing it away? Well, I don't want that gift to compete with my love for you. Right? I'd be a little disappointed. They're like, what? It's not going to particularly make me happy. What would? If he enjoys the gift. If he's thankful to me for the gift. If he sees it as demonstrating how good and loving I am to him. If he shares the gift with his friends. Be generous and ready to share. If he doesn't look at it and say, is that it? I wanted something more than this. The Father wants us to enjoy him and his gifts. And instead, we have been a people who are not thankful, who idolatrously pursue more money, who trust in our money rather than God, who are constantly caught in the if-only syndrome, who are rarely ready to share, who are anxious about our finances. And we have in many ways exchanged the love of the Father for the love of money and possessions. You guilty of that? I've been guilty of that. So what's my hope? Do better. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and endeavor to do better. Look, that's not my hope. My hope is that Jesus did none of that. That's my hope. My hope is that his perfect love for the Father is credited to me. That's your hope. That as Jason read earlier from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's his grace to us? That though he was rich, he had everything. As the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, he had all things. Though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. What does that mean? He gave up the glory, the majesty of being at the right hand of the Father to descend to earth to live as one of us, a creature. Perfectly, sinlessly, in our place, and then to go to the cross and pay the penalty due to us for our sin. That's how I became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Why did he do it all? He did it all so that when we look to him, when we look to Jesus in faith, we are rich because we are promised everything that God has in Christ. Jesus gave up everything. He loved the Father and his gifts so perfectly that he could give them all up to live among us and die as a common criminal. Why? So that we could again be restored to the Father and all his riches. So here's the end of the matter. Look to Jesus in faith. Trust in him. If you're a person who doesn't know Christ, if you've never looked him in faith, you need him. If you're the rich young ruler who's held on to your possessions, idolatrously pursues that and never finds joy in thanksgiving. It's time for you to repent. Look away from that. Turn to Jesus. Trust him. You'll be forgiven for your sins. 
cleansed of all unrighteousness, you'll be credited with his perfect life. Look to him in faith. And then, believers, that's you too. Look every day to him in faith. And then, with thanksgiving in your hearts, seize the day. Hear that? Seize the day rejoicing in God and his gifts and seize the day being generous and ready to share. As we learn in Lamentations, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will be glad and rejoice in it. Let me pray. Father, we ask your, we ask your help that we would be a people who look to Jesus in faith, that we know he is our hope, that he is the one who though rich became poor for our sakes, so that by his poverty we might become rich. Well, we know that doesn't predominantly speak to wealth. It speaks to enjoying you and all your gifts, whether given now or given in eternity. Father, we, we want to be thankful. We want to be a people who rejoice in you and what you give. Forgive us for our ingratitude. Father, every time we begin to lust, whatever that's for, whether it's for women, or for power, or for reputation, or for money. Father, we pray that you would help remind us that that lust is being sprung out of ingratitude, not being thankful for where we currently are and what we currently have. So we pray that you would do great work in us to make us a people who are deeply thankful and who sees this day, for it's the day that, it's the day that you have made, that we would be rejoicing, that we'd be glad in it. We pray this for the glory of your son's name, for the glory of your name, amen.